This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In any analysis of what's going on in the Middle East these days, and I'm not just talking about the Israel-Hamas war, but this could apply just as well to tensions with Iran. This could apply to tensions with countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and a lot of the questions that folks have about pseudo-alliances with countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The question becomes... What is Islam and what is its place in the world? Someone that has uh, frequently called out radical Islam for the last 20 years and been called every name in the book for it has been Robert Spencer, the director of Jihad Watch. Well, it turns out uh, he we're not only going to call upon his expertise and his opinions in what's happening in the Middle East these days, but he's got a new book out. And I'm embarrassed to say this was an aspect of world history that I knew very little until two days ago when I started reading this book. And uh, I am now inspired to learn a great deal more. The book is called Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. Very pleased to be joined by the director of Jihad Watch and a man who's been a New York Times bestselling author, Robert Spencer. Robert, it's great to talk to you again. Frank, always good to talk to you. Thank you. For people who have not heard us speak before or may not be familiar with you, what is Jihad Watch? Jihad Watch is actually the only news site, at least that I know of, in the entire world that tracks jihad activity in the United States and around the world every day, day in and day out. Uh, we've been doing it for 20 years now, and we're busier than ever with everything since October 7th, and you can find us at jihadwatch, J-I-H-A-D, watch.org. I'm sure you're aware of this, and I'm sure you've been asked about this before, but when you type Jihad Watch into Google, on the left side, it, the first thing that comes up is your website. And the second thing that comes up on the right side is a description, a little fact box that says, Jihad Watch is an American far-right anti-Muslim conspiracy blog operated by Robert Spencer. In that sentence that I just read, as provided by Google, what it, what is inaccurate and how do you feel about the way that Jihad Watch is often characterized? Well, I guess it is a blog, but otherwise everything in that is false. Uh, we are not anti-Muslim. We're anti-Jihad terror, which we were told right after 9-11 repeatedly had nothing to do with actual Islam, and most Muslims rejected it. So they shouldn't think that we are anti-Muslim. Any Muslim who is against Jihad violence is welcome to stand with us and would be happy for that. 
we cover news. We don't cover conspiracy theories. We carefully document everything that we put up, and if it proves to be an inaccurate report, then we correct it or take it down as the circumstances warrant. Uh, what we have here is the weaponization of the information sphere on the Internet that uh, is very much skewed toward propaganda that serves the interests of the people who are putting it out, but doesn't actually have anything to do with reality. One sign of that is the use of the term far right, which does it's supposed to make you think, oh, there must be they must be like Hitler or something like that, uh, when actually we have seen that the jihadis, the pro-Hamas folks that have come out in force since October 7th, uh, they are open in their admiration for Hitler, and so it's uh, something that's actually on the other side. But the idea is the use of the term far right is really designed just to make people think, oh, this is somebody that I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't like, shouldn't trust, shouldn't follow. It's just a smear term that the establishment uses to discourage people from looking into dissident points of view. But we uh, are very careful, scrupulously accurate at Jihad Watch. All our sources are noted and marked. We show the uh, ways in which jihadis are acting in accord with Islamic teaching and telling you angles on the news you're not going to hear anywhere else, but they're 100% accurate. Well, it's interesting the last part that you said, uh, how you mentioned that a lot of what's going on is in accordance with Islamic teaching. You've said that. A number of other folks have said that. Uh, so is the problem that the world is facing, is it an Islam problem or is it a radical militant Islam problem? Well, in a certain sense, it's both, because the radical militant Muslims are not all the Muslims. But the radical militant Muslims do have Islamic teachings that they can use and do use to justify their actions and to make recruits among peaceful Muslims. And so it ends up being the same thing, that you don't have all the Muslims on board, but the ones who are have plenty of justification that they can point to. And that makes it a dangerous and difficult thing to deal with because the Muslims who reject it, they don't actually have a leg to stand on in terms of Islamic teaching. We're glad they reject it, but we can't pretend that they represent the truth of the religion or the, even the broad mainstream in it. Do you see a difference at all between uh, Sunni Islam and Shia Islam in terms of its impact on the West or something like the likelihood of terrorism in places like the United States? Well, the Sunnis are more involved with actual kind of terror attacks that we see like 9-11 and uh, October 7th and so on. On the other hand, the October 7th massacre in Israel was funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is Shiite. And so <laughs> while there is d d deep dislike and distrust between the Sunnis and the Shia, at the same time, they hate each other. Uh, I mean, they hate the non-Muslims more. So there's actually a, a saying in Arabic that translates to my brother against my brother, but both of us against our cousins. <laughs> I've not heard that one, but it certainly seems apropos. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Talking with Robert Spencer, his new book we're going to tell you about momentarily. It's called Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. There are a lot of Muslim leaders around the world. Well, I should say there are at least some Muslim leaders around the world that have shown they're pretty serious about taking on uh, jihadists. You have uh, General Sisi in Egypt. You have people like King Abdullah in Jordan. These are folks that are adherents to Islam, but do you give them high high marks for beating back the tide of militant Islam in their countries? Well, sure. I mean, Sisi has been tremendous in limiting the power of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is maybe the chief jihad group in the world today, even though it's not ordinarily thought of as a jihad group because it's happy to work through peaceful means, through elections and so on, doesn't usually just blow things up. But Hamas, is the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine. That's what it calls itself. And the Muslim Brotherhood was the uh, father of al-Qaeda and other jihad groups, and it's dedicated to imposing Islamic law around the world, which is what the jihad groups want to do as well. And so uh, I think it's, it's hard to make a distinction between the jihad groups and the Muslim Brotherhood. Sisi has limited the Muslim Brotherhood to a tremendous degree after they took power and ruled in Egypt for a year in 2012. Uh, the thing is, here again, as I said earlier, the people who are working against jihadis in the Islamic world do not generally have an Islamic argument to make. What Sisi is doing is limiting the power of political Islam in Egypt, and that earns him the reputation of being an apostate or a heretic, an infidel, and so on, among the Brotherhood and its allies. And so it's not as if he can say, oh, I represent a different understanding of Islam. He just doesn't want Islam to rule in Egypt, and that's all to the good in terms of human rights and in terms of violence against non-Muslims and so on. But it's not really an Islamic point of view. Understood. Um, I know this is not directly related to Islam, but uh, it is related to foreign policy, something that you've become something of an expert in over the last few decades as well. Uh, We learned yesterday the uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100, probably the uh, best known until yesterday living American diplomat, also probably one of the most controversial. What's your view of Henry Kissinger? legacy? Well, I have to say, I'm sorry, you know, they say don't speak ill of the dead and so on, but I'm not a not an admirer of Henry Kissinger, never have been. Uh, Henry Kissinger, for one thing, is one of the principal architects of the still-in-place policy of ignoring Islam when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, the paradox about that is that if you read 
the writings of or the statements of Hamas, as well as Palestinian Islamic Jihad and all the other jihad groups that are fighting against Israel. And you read the statements even of the Palestinian Authority, the mm. alleged moderates, they're all about Islam, and they speak from beginning to end about the conflict in Islamic terms, and they don't speak about it in any other terms than Islamic. And yet the aspect of Islam in its relationship to the conflict has been unanimously and universally ignored and dismissed by every last Western analyst who has studied the issue. And that is largely due to Henry Kissinger's influence. Uh, you mentioned the Israel-Hamas situation, and now there's talk of uh, extending this truce, possibly. Uh, how do you see this situation playing out? Obviously, uh, there's been a lot of death and a lot of destruction. There have been calls for an extended ceasefire. There's some concerns about the hostages. Well, give me your your hope, uh, your b- hope for a best-case scenario going forward, and tell me what you think the more realistic scenario might be. The best-case scenario would be that Israel would be free to do what it said it was going to do, which was destroy Hamas altogether. Now, destroying Hamas altogether is not going to end the jihad. Other jihad groups will arise. There will be jihad as long as there are people who believe in Islam and the Quran and Muhammad. But at the same time, it would be a massive setback for the jihad in general if Hamas were defeated. And the thing is, though, that the chief obstacle to defeating and destroying Hamas that Israel faces is that is exactly the people who we think of as think of as the principal allies of the Israelis. And that's the people in Washington, the Biden administration. They don't want Hamas destroyed. They want to restore the status quo ante, the status quo before the massacre of October 7th. And the problem with that is it's just going to end up getting more innocent people killed. It's a difficult thing. It's tough. It's understandable why they want Israel to stop and they want to make some kind of peace. But that's only just kicking the can down the road. It's only going to lead to this a kind of massacre that we saw on October 7th happening yet again. And so if we want to put an end to this once and for all, or at least for a considerable period into the future, then then Israel has to be given a free hand. But what's much more likely is that we're going to get uh, as soon as the fighting resumes, as if it does at all, then there will be new calls for a ceasefire. And eventually the Biden regime will pressure Israel which, of course, doesn't want to end up being completely isolated on the world stage. And so it can't cross the United States, can't defy the United States. And as a result, it will ultimately stop short of the goal and a new peace will prevail for a while until the rockets and the massacres start again. For the last 16, 17 years or so, a lot of folks have viewed Fatah as a more moderate alternative to Hamas and a uh, kind of a counterbalance among the Palestinians to a more radical ideology. There was an article in either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times last weekend showing that a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank view Abbas as someone that has just been doing Israel's bidding, somebody that has been... uh, 
uh, handpicked by Israel on uh, to sit on sort of a fake crown. Do you view Fatah as a potential as a part of a potential future moderate Palestinian authority? Is Fatah truly a bulwark against Hamas? No, not in the slightest degree. Uh, the difference between Hamas and Fatah is the difference between people who want to get something done fast and people who are more patient. But that's all. They have the same goal. They both want Israel completely destroyed. The idea coming out of Washington that we're going to have two states living side by side in peace, the total pipe dream, it'll never happen. And it'll never happen because of the maximalism of the jihad ideology. The jihad is uh, total, and it calls for the complete destruction of Israel because it's based on the idea that that land belongs to Islam. And so if they establish a state and recognize Israel, which is unlikely ever to happen to begin with, it's only a stepping stone, and there will be more jihad attacks, probably from that new state, in order to ultimately bring about the goal of destroying Israel. Fatah is willing to negotiate and make deals and have agreements and so on, and Hamas is not. And so that's what I mean by saying that Hamas is impatient and Fatah is patient. But they both ultimately are working for the same thing. I I could talk to you for a whole hour just about current events. And um, my only regret is it's been so long since we've spoken. I want to ask you about these folks disrupting the Christmas tree lighting. I want to ask you about the recent elections in the Netherlands. But you're just going to have to come back uh, to chat about that sometime soon. Your book, Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization, Uh, Really interesting, really fascinating. And as I said uh, when I was introducing you, I was embarrassed how little I knew about the Byzantine Empire. Were you always interested in the Byzantine Empire? If not, what prompted you to study this aspect of uh, civilization? Yeah, I can tell you, Frank, this is a book that I've wanted to write for a number of years. Uh, My family is actually from that part of the world. So uh, you go back far enough in my ancestry, and you have people who lived in the Byzantine Empire, and uh, this was always a part of history that captured my imagination. And I always thought that, yeah, Americans, I think, don't know enough about how much it influenced our own country. People don't know, for example, that the Emperor Justinian, the greatest of the Byzantine emperors, he actually uh, made a code, a law, a legal code that... John Adams and Thomas Jefferson studied when they were uh, setting up the laws of the United States and formulating the Constitution and so on. And that's just one of many, many aspects in which our own lives have been affected by the Byzantines. And I think nowadays when there's such ignorance of history, when we see these barbarians out there marching for Hamas and they have no idea what they're fronting for, uh, we need to start to recover a sense of our own heritage and our own culture. And so, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. When we think of the uh, roots of Western civilization, you even write this early on in the book in uh, either chapter one or the introduction, which is uh, very creatively titled, Not the Empire You Want, But the Empire You Need. As a Batman fan, I appreciated the the reference. <laughs> you write that when we think of the West, we often think of Athens. We think of Rome, maybe Jerusalem. We don't necessarily think of the Byzantine Empire as being um, uh, 
so integral to Western civilization. For people that uh, don't use the term Byzantine on a regular basis, remind us, who were the Byzantines? Where did they rule? When did they rule? Well, for one thing, the Byzantines were the Romans. A lot of people are aware that the Byzantine Empire is also called the Eastern Roman Empire. Fewer people are aware that the Byzantines never called themselves Byzantines or Eastern Romans. They were the Romans, the Roman Empire of Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, all that that we people may remember from school and that is supposed to have fallen in 476, act, the year 476. Actually, what happened was they had expanded out east and established a second capital in Constantinople, the city that is now Istanbul, the capital, the, not the capital, but the largest city in Turkey. And uh, in Constantinople, the emperors continued to reign. And even when they lost Rome, they still figured, well, you know, they just as if, if Americans lost Washington, they would still be Americans. And so the Romans continued to call themselves Romans. And the Roman Empire continued, or known as the Byzantine Empire today, until the year 1453. And a lot of people, you know, know that uh, our own modes of thinking, philosophically, politically, theologically, that they come from originally from the ancient Greeks, the lesser known is the fact that that literature had been completely lost, almost completely lost. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, there were only two books of Plato that were known and circulating in Western Europe when scholars from the Byzantine Empire in the 15th century traveled to Italy and they started giving talks about Plato, introducing all this thought into Western Europe. That was the beginning of the Renaissance. And so it has a lot to do with our own history and even our own society is a free society that respects the freedom of conscience and the dignity of the human person. These ideas come to us from the Byzantine Empire. Given that that's the case, given that so much of Western civilization has its roots in the Byzantine Empire and so much of American uh, society and all the other aspects that you mentioned are inspired by uh, the Byzantine culture, why does no one talk about them? I don't get the sense that they have the same place in global studies classes in high schools around the country that the ancient Greeks do, the ancient Romans. Why is that? Well, I think that in part it's a uh, matter of PR that you have the Ottoman Empire that supplanted, that conquered Byzantium, conquered the Byzantine Empire, and that has been the uh, subject of a great deal of study because uh, there was this backlash against alleged Islamophobia after 9-11, and people wanting to speak about the contributions of Islam to the West, and so there was a great deal about the Ottomans. And uh, meanwhile, Plato and Aristotle and those guys, they uh, are indeed at the foundation of our culture, and it came to be taken for granted that that was so while people generally forgot how it was that we came to know them. And so it's just, uh, you know, circumstances as things go by, uh, I think that people um, started to think of the Byzantines in a negative way, primarily because of Islamic apologetics in our own day. I've read so many people saying, you know, when the Arabs came out of Arabia in the 7th century and started conquering the lands of the Byzantine Empire in the Middle East, 
they were welcomed as liberators because the Byzantines were so oppressive. Total historical myth. But that kind of thing is what people know generally if they know anything about the Byzantine Empire. And it's really just part of Islamic public relations post 9-11. So I wanted to set the record straight to, to a tremendous degree in things like that. So what do we know about the Byzantine cultures and the Byzantine Empire's clashes with Islam? I mean, this was not ancient history for them. Muhammad wrote a letter to the Byzantine emperor. What was the nature of Muhammad's uh, interactions with the Byzantine Empire? Well, that is all part, that's all in uh, Islamic literature from a little bit later, so it's not certain that it actually happened, but the story is that Muhammad wrote to Heraclius, the, the Byzantine emperor, inviting him to convert to Islam, that Heraclius refused. Muhammad died shortly thereafter, and the Arabs poured out of Arabia, started conquering the territories in the area right next to there, which is uh, the Middle East, the Levant, the uh, areas, the regions of North Africa. They were all Byzantine. And this is what is known today as the heart of the Islamic world. So this was a tremendous blow to the Byzantine Empire at that time. It was able to stabilize and regain some of that territory and hold the line, actually fighting a series of defensive wars against the jihadis for fully 800 years. And if they had not been there, then the jihadis would have gone to Europe pretty much unopposed. And there would be, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. There would, there would be no European culture or Western civilization as we know it. No idea of uh, these things that I mentioned before, the equality of rights of all people, the freedom of speech. So many things would have been completely obliterated in Europe and thus never would have come to North America. I know you mentioned that they were supplanted by the Ottoman Empire, but when the Byzantine Empire ultimately fell in 1453, why, how and why did it fall? Are there lessons that can be learned by the falling, the decline and the fall of the Byzantine Empire by, say, the United States? What can we learn from the decline of the Byzantine Empire? Well, I can say the primary lesson is that there needs to be a recognition of the threat among all those who are threatened and unity among them. Now that ought to be an elementary point, but look at think look about at the nations that are today threatened by jihad violence. They're not united, they're not working together. They don't recognize jihad as a common threat that is dangers all of them. This is not something that's on their radar. And it was the same thing with the Byzantines, even though the Byzantines were fighting against the jihadis for 800 years. And in Western Europe, after a few hundred of those years, they sent crusaders to try to beat back the jihadis to some degree. The uh, West was at odds with the Byzantines for hundreds of years because of the split in the church between what we know of today as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And consequently, they didn't want to help unless the Byzantine Empire would agree to accept the Pope and become Catholic, and they didn't want to do that. And so the infighting in the West gave the jihadis an opportunity. If they had been able to come to some kind of an accord that would have enabled them to work together, 
then there, the Byzantine Empire may never have fallen. could still be there. We're going to have to end it there. Robert Spencer, you can check out his website, Jihad Watch, uh, he, where he is the director. A lot of interesting analysis and information. It's uh, at uh, jihadwatch.com, uh, or excuse me, jihadwatch.org. And you could also check out the new book, Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilizations. Robert, I hope we could talk again. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.